You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Um, if you are new, I'd love to meet you. I know others would love to meet you as well, but uh, welcome to Genesis. And we are in a series called The Word of Life where we're hearing teachings of Jesus. And um, it's going to finish up next week. Uh, and we, so I said, well, what am I, what am I going to do today? How, how can I bring, how can I serve you guys in bringing the scriptures? And one of the things that I like uh, are odd passages. I like passages that when you read them, you go, I'm not really sure what's happening. I don't know what exactly that means, right? Because the scriptures were written to a group of people at a specific time, and Jesus, who came into this world, was teaching two crowds, and at the same time was teaching to us, and so there's times I hear things, I go, I don't really know what in the world is going on there. So I picked that passage, did no preparation, I'm just going to read it and hope that it makes sense as we go, right? Not really, I did read it, I am prepared, and I have notes. But I was having a conversation with my kids just this week where I said, um, what's the difference between uh, saying something that's not true and lying. That was a good, a good conversation for me to have with my kids. What is the difference between lying and saying something that is not true? Because we have this way of just saying anything that you say that's not true is a lie. So my kids like sports. I don't know if your kids do, but they're big basketball fans, basketball trivia. They know more about basketball trivia from any era than I do. And so... Um, I said, so what if somebody read about, in an old book or an older book a few years ago about Kevin Durant playing for the Thunder? And they said confidently, Kevin Durant plays for the Thunder. Would they be lying? My answer, and their answer was, no. Like, like there's no intent to deceive there. There's no hope that I'm telling you something that's not true. It's just embarrassing. Now, saying something that's not true can be pretty bad, can't it? If a physician says something that's not true or goes off of old knowledge or doesn't do the full battery of tests to figure out what's going on, that's not good. That's malpractice. So saying things that aren't true isn't necessarily good, but there is a little bit of difference I found between somebody stating something and realizing they they weren't aware of all the facts and somebody knowing something to be true and then saying something different on purpose. And that's where we'll be today, where Jesus tells a parable about somebody who lies and then that person is praised for their lying by the person who was deceived. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like if my kids lie, I'm like grounded for life, for life. You're not going to college. You're not getting married. You're not leaving the house ever again. You'll be 55, done. We have pretty high bar in our house. It's not that intense, but about lying. So I have rules. You don't lie. It's just what we do. And then they're like, well, dad, you've lied. And I've told stories about how I've lied to people. I'm like, you're right. There's grace, but I lied. And it's embarrassing and it's, and it's no fun. So we have a really high bar in our home and for my family in honesty. When somebody lies, we don't go, good job. I'm really glad that you lied. Yet Jesus tells a story where that happens. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. I know that Patrick preached through the gospel of Luke at one time. And I said, have you done this? He goes, yeah, we preached Luke. I said, great, I'm going to do it again. We'll see if we remember it, um, and that if I can maybe even do it half the justice that perhaps he did. I went to go listen to his sermon. I couldn't track it down, so I feel like I have free reign now because I didn't get to hear that. So Luke 16, we're going to do verses 1 through 9. Luke 16, verses 1 through 9, where we get to hear Jesus tell a story about someone who is praised for lying and then use it as a rebuke of us. And it has to do with something that we, it probably matters to every person in this room, even if we don't say that it does, which is, it has to do with money. Money. 
So Jesus says it like this, Luke 16, verse one. Now he said to the disciples, he was speaking in 15 to the Pharisees. Now he's speaking to the disciples, but the Pharisees are still around. He says, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Verse three, then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, I'm ashamed to beg, means he has a lot of pride. I know that what I'll do, I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. He summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of oil, he said. Talking years of labor's worth. Take your invoice. Sit down quickly. Write 50. Cuts it in half. He asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. It is likely in the telling of the story that that went on and on. Called his debtors, the master called his debtors, and went on and on and on. He's he's deceiving every single time. Cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. And he's doing this for his own gain. Verse eight, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And then verse nine, which tries to summarize it, which is again an odd way to summarize it. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly, your your translation might read unrighteous wealth, means wealth of this world, money from this world that doesn't go into heaven. So that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. And I just read that and I'm like, huh? Like what, what is happening there? I mean, let's just think about a couple of things. We have this story. There's a scenario. There's a man who's about to lose his job because he gets, his master gets word that he's been deceiving him. The guy doesn't come clean. I mean, if you've ever been caught doing something wrong, probably good to come clean. We've all done it. I got to make that right. Did you do this? Yes, I did. And it's always hard to suffer consequences of doing the wrong thing, isn't it? It's kind of embarrassing. It sometimes hurts. There's always a cost associated with it, which is why... Being honest is better than lying. And if I were a math equation, honesty greater than lying. In every, every single time, it is better. Yet this person realizes his master's coming after him, and what does he do? Well, I know what I'm gonna do. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna go ahead and take all these debtors, and I'm going to reduce what they owe my master. That way they like me. And have you ever felt this, especially in this culture? Have you ever seen kind of the, uh, the power money has to make you feel indebted to somebody, to make you feel like you, you owe something to someone? Even though Jesus says, give and have no expectation of receiving. Right? The believer in Christ is supposed to give and be generous with no expectation of what comes back because we realize that we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. However, we see in an earthly sense so often in this world that when money is given, it often comes with strings. And this person knew that. I'm gonna go ahead and reduce the load significantly. Rather than owe three years labor, you're gonna owe one year labor. If somebody did that to you, if somebody came up to you today and said, I'm gonna pay off your mortgage, gonna pay it off, would you feel a little indebted to that person? 
little bit, babysitting for life, whatever, whatever it is, whatever you, like, you go, I must do something for you. And this person knew, in a worldly sense, knew exactly what his reducing the debt would do. These people are now, when I'm homeless, when I have no job, when I have no income, they're gonna take care of me. They're gonna take care of me. Now we have to stop there because sometimes when we read Jesus telling us parables, we assume that that happened somewhere in the past. Now I know of no business person who when discovered that somebody has, discovering somebody has deceived them goes, great job. But Jesus is teaching in order to illustrate something to his followers. And when he does that, he's telling the story in such a way. Goes to folks, asks them this, and the master praises his worker. He essentially goes, that was smart. It's not as if he was bound to do that, to go, this, that was smart. But in illustration of the story, Jesus is doing this. Now, we just have to stop for a second and realize that when deceived, we don't just give it a thumbs up even though that's exactly what this person did. This is how John Calvin writes about this passage. He goes, here, here it is obvious that if we were to attempt to find a meaning for every circumstance in this passage, we would act absurdly. To make donations out of what belongs to another man is an action which is very far from deserving applause. And who would patiently endure that an unprincipled villain should rob him of his property and give it away according to how he wants? It were indeed the grossest stupidity if that a man who beheld a portion of his substance was taken away, if somebody had something taken from them, should commend the person who stole it, stole it and gave it to others. But Christ only meant what he adds a little afterwards, verses eight and nine, that ungodly and worldly men are more industrious and skillful in conducting the affairs of this fading life than the children of God are anxious to obtain the heavenly and eternal life or careful to make it the subject of their study and meditation. So Jesus is moving the story to get us to the second half of verse eight and verse nine. And this is what we see. Second half of verse eight, as Jesus summarizes the story, the manager praised this person and he says this, for the children of this age are more shrewd, more wise, smart than the children of light in dealing with their own people. Jesus is rebuking us. He's saying people of this world are far more concerned about how money works to get what they long for than you are about how money works to secure things for eternity, to store up treasures in heaven. The world is concerned in a way, and they, like, if you ever read books written by people who are smart with money, you go, man, oh man, how do you do this? Like they can take a nickel and turn it into a million dollars like it's nothing. They just sneeze and it comes out. And I have no idea how they do this because I'm not that good. I don't sneeze and money come out. I'm like, you know, that's not, not how it works in my house. And yet there are people in this world who talk about Warren Buffett or whoever else and how they might give and how they think and the way that they pay taxes and all, the way they set up their life. And it's so smart. It really is so smart that they're diligent in applying what they know of how the world works to gain income and at times friends for themselves. And Jesus says, the world is way better at this than you are, church. They're way better at this than my followers are at how to handle money and have it accomplish their purposes. 
That's what he's doing right here. That's why he takes this moment and this story and summarizes it the way that he does because he's bringing it to the point where he says, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous or worldly wealth. So Christians, essentially, should be all the more concerned about what they think about their money and how they use it than the world is. But we have to go, why? Why would Jesus say that? Why would he rebuke us in that instance? And one reason is because we, of all people, should know what's coming. We should know what's coming. We know how the world ends. And we know what the consequence of faithlessness is. We know what happens if somebody dies today and they have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are aware of it. But we do not live as if that matters. We know what should be most important. We have been saved by Christ, adopted into his family. We are his children, brothers and sisters together with Jesus, with a heavenly father. We have that. And when we have that, we should be aware that our stuff is just stuff. And it serves the purpose of making Jesus more known. Our stuff our house, our cars, our bank accounts. They go away. We should know that. I mean, we're not, we, we, we are aware, unlike pharaohs that got buried with their fortunes, hoping that it went with them into the afterlife, we know, hey, you know what? That's kind of expensive. I'm just gonna take it out of there because you don't have it. I mean, what a bait and switch. You die and you get buried with your stuff and you're now not with the Lord and you're like, I don't even have my stuff. I didn't have the stuff I thought would come with me because we, you and I, know it doesn't. We know what matters most. We know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know people who don't know Jesus, but do we actually make decisions today that reflect that knowledge? Do we spend time and energy and money realizing and making decisions in the same shrewd way that this person did about securing his own future when he lost his job? And I think we don't. We don't. We might be diligent in our finances for our own gain. We might have a really solid budget. We might make really good plans so that we can have more money. But what happens when somebody who has been changed by the grace of Jesus Christ, when somebody who's been changed by the grace of Jesus Christ then looks at their possessions, looks at their bank account and goes, How can I be smart with this so that something else might happen in eternity? So this is how Jesus summarizes in verse nine. So I tell you, and I always love when Jesus does this for me because sometimes he's teaching and I'm like, I don't really know what, what to get from that, Jesus. And he'll go, let me tell you, just hold on, let me tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. Your, again, your translations might say unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Bizarre way to try and apply that. But since Jesus said it, and Jesus is kind of smart, we're gonna connect the dots. So the first statement, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. Make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth. This does not mean use your money in the same way that the person in the story does. Use your money to make people feel indebted to you. That's not what he means. Doesn't mean that. 
If we act like that, then we're missing the fact that Jesus has already taught, give and expect nothing in return. Jesus has already taught about storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So to make friends for ourselves by means of worldly wealth means this. When we take the third idea, welcome you into eternal dwellings, it means that we take our money and we give attention to it and we use faithful and clever ways to spend our money and our things to advance the kingdom of God. That's what we do. Because the third statement after when it fails, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings, I think it means this, that there might be people who come to faith because you have made an investment in something. That people might come to faith because you saw a need and met it. That they saw your generosity, or maybe they received your generosity, and it taught them something about God that they would not have been taught otherwise. That you were committed to those purposes, and in that way. Our attention needs to be on using our money in faithful and clever ways. I keep using the word clever because I think that's an important part of what this does and what this says. Because the sons of this world are way better at it than we are, so what should we do? I remember hearing a story in seminary about a guy who set up for himself, I didn't even know what this was, because I was you know, a snotty-nosed seminary student who knows everything but doesn't really, and talked about a guy who had a ton of influence in the church world, ton of influence, still does. And how he set up a corporation, corporation soul, if you wanna know what that is, but set up a corporation, and essentially, rather than him getting paid, organizations paid the corporation, okay? Now, this sounds a little funny, right? So he's, he has this organization of which he's the employee, but rather than, he actually pastors at a church, but rather than get paid by the church, the church pays his company, and his company pays him. And I thought to myself, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, it sounds like you're trying to deceive. Why? Because I'm a snot-nosed seminary student who knows everything about what is right let alone that this guy's in his 60s and has been following Jesus for decades and teaching people to follow Jesus for decades, but I know what's up at 22, so you just listen to me, all right? But this was why. Because he knew that if he did that, then that company was in charge of all of the content, owned it, and he could distribute it for free. So here's a funny thing, you may not know this, and this is just an illustration of the idea. Everything that I produce, every sermon, if I wrote a book for Genesis, it would belong to Genesis. Unless the elders and I talked about it and said, you know, this is, you know, what are we gonna do with this? It belongs to the church because we're together in this thing. So he goes, well, I want it to go beyond that. This pastor goes, I wanna be able to use it to give it away, everything else like that. Some of you are friends with, uh, are friends with maybe you were friends with John Piper, I don't know, if you are, give me his number. So he has no, he does not get any money for his books. All of his books, if you go to desiringgod.org, all of his books are there in PDF form to read. And the dollars that go in, that, that purchase those books go to the Desiring God Foundation. He gets no money from them. Why? Because then he is free to give that money away in ways that align with that mission. And so sometimes it's a check in my heart. Because we can get really annoyed. We go, oh man, you, you're rich and famous and you do all these things and that's actually not the case. They've taken what God has given them and thought of clever ways to use whatever gain may come to advance God's purposes. To let other people know. 
And when I see that, then I go, man, that's smart. Because you're thinking beyond your own existence. You're thinking about the need for other people to do this. I could go on and on. I have a friend who teaches on discipling ministries and he goes, I write lots of books. Every dollar of those books goes to the organization and that organization exists to help people make disciples. I don't see it, I don't touch it. Which always gets a little funky if you're successful. If you're not successful, it's no big deal. But if you actually do well for yourself, then you're starting to go, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have done that at all. Other, other pastors, and again, this is, I think in the pastoral world, but I'll get to those of you who don't live in the ministry world here in a moment. They make no money from their churches because the Lord has provided for them, maybe through books, they just flip it. So they pastor for free and their income comes from somewhere else. Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. People who have taken dollars and cents and possessions and said to themselves, how could we utilize what exists in this world to advance God's purposes? Couldn't we all be that smart? We could. That we study the tax code, which is no fun for anybody, maybe three of you, to figure out what is the way that I could maximize the money in my pocket so that I could give the most of it away that you actually look at it and figure it out. How could I, what's the smartest way, not for me to get rich, but for me to make friends by means of worldly wealth so that others might come to faith? How could I do that? How could I be diligent for it? How could I find new ways to make money so that I could support more people who are going to bring the gospel to the unreached? How could I be focused so solely on that so that when the world looks at me, they go, you're kind of crazy. You're right, I'm crazy. I know something that no one else knows. I believe that a guy died and then woke up. And when he woke up, he had a different body and he's actually still alive in that body up in heaven. Yeah, I believe that. And he was perfect and he was God. I mean, if you wanna focus in on those little silly things that we believe as evangelicals, fine. But let's just kinda of go to the meat of it. I believe somebody was God, died, and then got up. And he's still alive for talking about claims that you kind of stumble over. So yeah, I'm gonna be a little different than you might be. I'm gonna look at my taxes a little different than you might. I'm gonna look at my job differently than you might. I'm gonna look at my house a little differently and my car than you might look at it. We should. We should. And Jesus says here, you should. You shouldn't let the world lap you and how it handles its finances. You shouldn't let them be smarter than you. You should go after it. You should be smart with it. You should get excited about it. You should look for ways to see other people come to know Jesus Christ and how you use your possessions. So I have a couple. Those were just ministry illustrations, but just a few things for us. Think of your vocation. Your vocation. Some of you have jobs that you get paid for and some of you have jobs that you don't get paid for. Shout out to moms. But think of your vocation not simply as just the way you make money, but a way that you make Jesus known. That you work as hard as you can and as faithfully as you can with all the wisdom that you have so that you can support what God is doing in this world. That it's not just, well, you know, I have a job and I guess I use that to make money. I heard of a guy one time 
who wanted to be able to give more and more and more. This again goes back to goofy book stories. And he prayed, God, you know, I pray that there's people who can give to these causes, uh, but if they don't exist, then, then increase my money so that I can do it. And then, for whatever reason, became wildly successful and uses, again, all of that money. We might go, oh, they're just rich and they're all about themselves. No, uses that for that purpose. Now, what happens on the other side, right? And this is what we try to stay away from. People who use the church for their own means. And they say, oh, God needs us to get a new jet. You know, God needs us to do this. God really needs us to do that. And it's about their increase in their status. And so I think sometimes you and I, brothers and sisters, get afraid of thinking about what could happen with the money that God gives to us and the possession that God gives to us because we don't want to become selfish. I don't want you to become selfish either. I don't want you to become stuck on yourself. We don't want you to become stuck on yourself and only thinking about you and your life and your things. That's not fun. But man, do I want you to be clever about what you could do and how you could do it to advance the name of Jesus. For those of you who are in this room and you haven't gone to college yet, I want you to be clever about the degree that you pick that gives you access to careers that help you to advance the name of Jesus. I want you to be thinking about that now. What could I do now? What decision could I make now that might take six years, but when I get to the back end, I have a friend who did this. I was telling this story last night at the adoption uh, fundraiser. I have a friend who said, I'm gonna be a petroleum engineer so that I could go to the Middle East. You know, me, it's like if I wanted to be a missionary, I'd be like, hey, I'm Hans, I'm a missionary. No, an English teacher, that's what I am. That's what, we, that's what missionaries do is they go over as English teachers. We have no training, but we're gonna teach you English. He goes, how about I get training in something that they actually want? They want people who know this world over there. They invite us over if we have it. So I'm gonna decide as a teenager my career path so that I can make Jesus known. But that's so often not how we think. We just kind of stumble into it. And I was that guy. I, was, I had three majors my first year, and then I picked speech. <laughs> so then I went to seminary a couple more times, and I'm still basically unemployable. Thank you guys very much. <laughs> but I want you to get excited about how God might use you in your vocation to make his name known. I don't want you to go, that's just a job. No, it's not just a job. In the same way that I'm here or the Rose are going to Thailand or Matt's leading you in worship, in the same way that we are here, God has you where you are. And we're here together as a church family going, how can we make God known in the spaces and places he has put us and how can we do that faithfully? So think of your vocation, not simply as what you do, but the way that God gives you opportunities to make him known. Think of your salary as that, okay, God? If it's high or if it's low, what have you given me and what can I do with it? Now, I want you to also see earthly wealth for what it is, which is a tool. It is a means to an end, and the end is Jesus glorified. And it's good if you eat too. But that glorifies Jesus to take care of your family. Glorifies Jesus to be sure those needs are met. But it's a tool to make Jesus known in this world. So see it for what it is. And Jesus knows what's up because he goes, because when it finishes or when it perishes, he goes, there's gonna be a time when you die and that money is worth zero. Zero. Now your kids hope it's not, but to you, (laughs) zero. Where you don't even care anymore. In fact, think about this. 
for the bulk of your life if you have faith in Jesus Christ because we will be there for all eternity, you will not care about money. So why don't you start practicing now? Just start practicing now for what that's like. So see earthly wealth for what it is, which is a tool. That means I, for one, I want you to earn it. I want you to earn it and I want you to be smart with it. I want you to start businesses that solely exist to support the work of the gospel around the world. Some of you have brains that think like that. I do not. But I want you to be serious about it. I want you to get excited about it. I want you to realize that God could use you in Spring, Texas to reach somebody in Oman. And that it's not just a joke. I'm not like, oh yeah, we'll just say that because we really think they need to feel it and feel good about themselves. No, he could. He could. That God could use your job and your desires and those little burdens. Everybody has these little burdens. That go, man, I've been thinking about doing something like this for 15 years. Just kind of never done it. Been afraid. Don't be afraid. I mean, the worst thing that happens is it doesn't work. The best thing that happens is it's awesome. But don't have a regret about not pursuing something because you're afraid of what might happen. We should cheer, uh, cheer one another on to be faithful and smart and figure out how they can make God known. At the same time, be content. Scriptures are clear on that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so do not get bugged if you don't have what you want. If you're gonna get bugged over anything, get bugged that not enough people know Jesus. Let that be the motivation. Not that you don't have what you want, the things that you'd like. Focus on giving to causes that advance the name of Jesus. That's a third thing for us to consider. That to be smart with your money doesn't just mean you're looking for a charitable giving contribution at the end of the year. You know, I gotta hit this so that I can do that. No, be smart about it. Be smart about it. Find the, I, I wrote it down like this, local church, missionaries, and ministries. Be a part of a local church that is faithful to make Jesus known and give faithfully to it. Find people in your life and around the world who are bringing the gospel to the unreached and help them do that by supporting the work that they do because there is no local church that is there to support them. So be serious about it. And then certain ministries. I know of a missionary training school, I think I mentioned it in Tijuana, and they're always, they train you to be a marathoner to bring Jesus to the nations. That's how they want you to think about it. Like they, they kind of go, hey, you're here with your kids or you're here as a college student, just prepare to go somewhere and never be heard of again. And I'm like, you know what? I could buy new jeans or I could give them my money and perhaps I gain eternal friends from it. That, that the multiplying effect of giving to causes that advance the name of Jesus last into eternity and my jeans last a year and a half lest I grow out of them the wrong way. Fourth, be relentless in the task to do this. Don't get sleepy. Have a list of places, keep it running, of where you'd like to give, and as God gives you the ability, give to it. Just keep it down. If somebody says, 
hey, can you support us? Because we all get that. And I, and I worked at a church in a college campus and we'd send students out at the end of the summer, like at the beginning of the summer, end of the semester, and they would all be raising support. And they don't, you know, like, they don't know everybody. So they're all raising support from the same people because the generous people are all known in your church. And so they all get the missionary support letters. And so our church had to learn lines of just like, I would really like to support you, but I'm giving to these things. If you just have a way you're thinking about it, then you can say to somebody, we're supporting these causes right now. We'd love to help you. And should we have increase, we would love to give that maybe one time, but this is where we're going. So just keep a list of the places that you wanna go, local church, missionaries, ministries. Where do we wanna support and how do we wanna support, right? Because now you're being proactive, not reactive. And I want you to be thinking about your things going, how could we keep the name of Jesus going out? Because when you do that, you get excited. You start thinking about your money and your time and your raises and your bonuses differently. And that's what we need to do. So be relentless. Find ways, I'm serious, find ways to pay fewer taxes, legal ways to pay fewer taxes. If you've read the book, um, oh gosh, Freakonomics, and it talks about uh, the time that millions of children disappeared because you had to start putting your children's social security number on your tax return. And then, well, now, you know, it was like overnight, and they tell that in one of their, you know, overnight, millions of children were kidnapped from the United States because parents had to actually be accountable for their actual existence. So find real ways to pay your taxes faithfully and give as much as you can. And don't pay dumb tax, meaning I didn't know about it, I didn't know I, was supposed, I didn't know I could do that. Like figure it out, go after it. Not just for your own gain, but for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's another one, because we can preach these things and we can go, man, I just don't, I don't have it. I don't have that, I can't do that right now. I can, I can give here. So this is the way I put it. Understand your stage of life and maybe your financial condition and be creative. And what I, what I mean is this, perhaps before you came to the Lord, you did not know that debt was dumb. And so you racked it up and you're gonna have to spend some time getting out of it, okay? Get out of it, because that's faithful to do. Don't be like, well, you know, I wanna give 300% of my income. Don't do that, right? That's how you got to where you are, by giving more than you had, or taking more than you had, spending more than you had. So, this is what I mean. If you don't have necessarily the money in the bank to do what you'd like to do, then get creative. What about your house? And when missionaries come back from the field, you could go, we'll take them. So what are you doing with that? Your energy bill, that space, the support, the groceries, what are you doing? You are providing for the advancement of the gospel. Your home, use your home. Your car, use your car. It might be something as simple as, let's say 2020, the roads are going, hey, they're coming back, we need to see them, we wanna see them, we're excited. Like, like I'm driving to the airport, like we, we need to be fighting over each other to go get them. I want to have the eternal friends, not you. Let's be, let's be serious about it and excited about it. And let's, like, let's, let's, as a church family, never have a need go unmet simply because we're waiting for the other person to move first. If anything, this is like, no, you gotta be serious about it. This guy in the parable knew what was up and he said, I gotta have a plan. And so he was ready. So we have to be ready. 
We have to think about it. So it might not just be in financial increase, but what possessions do you have? What time do you have? What energies do you have? What skill do you have that can help the name of Jesus go out and can support the gospel going both here and abroad? All of you have it. All of you have it. A way and a place that you can support the work that is going on to bring Jesus to the world. What about your lunch hours? Most of you eat. Some of you probably don't, but most of you eat. So what if you said, okay, I'm gonna just dedicate lunch a week to praying for or engaging somebody who doesn't know Jesus? And I'll buy. Maybe that's what you can do. You get no tax credit for it, I'm sorry. But you buy, you're generous, you're going for it. I want that for you and for us. And then finally, keep the perspective, this is important for us, of what is gained. Because what is gained is people in eternity. And this is the craziest image for me. Like people in eternity who are like, hey Hans, come in. I'm like, who are you? Never met you in my life. Oh no, you gave back here in this way and at this time and somebody was trained to go bring the gospel to me and I put my faith in Jesus and I've been waiting for you. What? What? That there are people that you may never meet on this earth. You'll have to get to the new heaven and the new earth before they go, yeah, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you how something that you did in 2018 led to me coming to faith in 2035. That something you did in faith led to that and I have been waiting to meet you. But we don't think like that with that kind of excitement and that kind of enthusiasm. This guy in the parable is like, I know what I'll do. On this earth, I'll make some friends so that I have a place to stay. I was like, man, you know, if there's a leak in my heavenly roof, I want to be able to go over to somebody else's house. There won't be a leak in the heavenly roof, don't worry. But metaphorically speaking, I want to go and I want to be there. And I want to realize that there's going to be people who welcome me in that I had no idea existed because I got serious about how I thought about my time, my money, my stuff to advance the name of Jesus throughout all the world. That that was my task. There's a rule, maybe I'll call it a guideline. I'll say, no, as I say, it's a rule. We try to keep this in our house. I'd love for you to keep it in yours if it would benefit you. Uh, but the more generous decision is always the better one. So if Courtney and I are having a discussion and we're like, hey, what should we give to this person? And we're like, okay, pick a number. Okay, so some of you are like, this is Hans, this may not be the best way to do decision making. Just go with me for a second. I say, I don't know. And I kind of go conservative and I'm like, you know, maybe we could give them 50 bucks. And she's like, I was thinking 200. I was like, well, 200 wins. It wins. Do it. Why be conservative with generosity? It doesn't make any sense. It's not as if I'm gonna outgive God. I'm not gonna do it. Like every spiritual blessing in Christ. Yeah, hold on, let me just check my bank account and see if I have that. Nope, I don't. I will never be able to give to people what God has already given to me in his son Jesus. You, we, Genesis, we will never be able to give to others what God has already given us in Jesus. And so that should change everything about how we think about what we do. So we use that as a way to think. What's more generous? What's more generous? And it may not be with our money, it may be with our time. Like, should we take this person into our house for three weeks or six weeks? Two weeks, that would be what I'd be saying. One week? 
What serves them? What is generous? What thinks with a mindset that goes, what is God working through this person or this place and this time? So this is what I think for us. With our money, with our stuff, we need to show this world that there's something more important than this world. We need to show this world that there's something more important than this world. I do not want people to look at us as a church and go, yeah, I mean, that's how I do it too. No, I want us to do things that cannot be replicated because we know what Christ has done for us and we know the mission that he has called us to and we know how the story ends and that we're serious about it, that we're burdened for it and that we think about all the spaces and places God has used us and we go, okay, why here, why now? Why on the side of the road with a flat tire? I'm so angry. All right, Lord, how can I use it? You get a raise, why? What can I do? Why, hopefully it's because you're good. What can I do with it? You lose a job, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? How do I still stay committed to advancing your name with where I am and what's going on? That we could show the world there's something more important to live for than this world. We can. We have been given something more than this world. And I pray that we are ignited as a people to do that. So let me pray for that now for us. Father, as we see the parable that your son tells, we know, God, your desire for us is to be clever for kingdom purposes, to be smart about it, even peculiar to this world because of how seriously we take the task of making friends by means of worldly wealth. So Father, help us as a people to not grow weary in doing good and be zealous in generosity for your cause and your purposes. That we look different because we are different that we believe different things and we know how the story ends and your son is alive and there are people who need to know him. Father, might we go out with that type of energy? Set us ablaze, Lord, for your purposes in this world, we pray in Christ's name, amen.